I'd like to invite you in a walk. In the past, when you wanted to force someone out of a place, usually to take their place in some way, or keep your place, you might have said that something about the way of the world justifies your place and the place you want them to be. One of the ways this is commonly taught is through a mandate of heaven. And later the concept of casus belli, a rightful, morally rightful cause of war. Which is still a fairly gray place, an opaque place. And like all opaque places, is rich in information. Part of the reason it's opaque might be best characterized by an essay by C.S. Lewis, Lewis, and I don't recall what it's called at the moment, but it talks about multiple hierarchies in a space. The obvious hierarchy that you find when you enter a space and the less obvious hierarchies. The more opaque the rules are, the easier it is for people who are socially skilled, that is, good at arranging and controlling where they are in a social hierarchy, the more they benefit. And typically, they will be resistant to anyone clarifying these rules that decide who gets to stand where and when, who gets to be where and when and how. At some point, with the rise of monotheism, and even before then, with large universalizing religions, it became useful to let these reasons be something like the person who might be singled out to be banished or attacked or simply moved against seemingly against their will 
is moved that way because they went against a norm. They went back on an agreement, a social agreement that everyone has. And so, violating that, they are now not protected, which leaves them open to attack by whoever. In law, we might think of this as the outlaw, though it happened way before law came along, for sure. It may be that you could not attack someone of your village, for example, but it was perfectly fine to raid another village or raid another band of people. So long as you did not cross certain unwritten rules, perhaps, about the kinds of people you might be allowed to kill or enslave. And that if you went too far, then the opposing groups might find other groups to join them to deal with you. So we do things in the name of the collective good. We can't actually act without the consent of everyone around us, in the sense that if you violate an agreement, even if you didn't know about the agreement, even if it was formed long before you were born, then you are no longer protected by the alliance formed by that agreement. And so whether it's damaging the sacred, engaging in something sacrilegious, or something as simple as this attack is justified because you just attacked me and I'm defending myself, or you did something to someone in my family that damaged my own security that is based on an agreement, such as the agreement that as long as I have honor within a particular hierarchy, then I can be safe to those other people within that hierarchy for as long as I uphold the agreement of what I will do if you violate my word or my face, my image. Given the rise of selling as a necessary means of coordination in very large groups,
it becomes necessary to maintain a representation of the self that fits with the hierarchy that one is in so that you can justify your place and justify taking the place of others in the agreed upon process of how ever you might do that say if you're a hard worker working for a group that may make sense to give you the position of someone high status when that position is open and if you as someone who's giving someone else that position violate this agreement and maybe select someone unknown by the group that is not known to have done the things that the group agrees should be high status then you may face a lot of resistance from your own group for selecting someone using a process that the group does not approve of. The moment we introduce good and evil into everyday life as extremes, the kind of thing we inherit from a desert religion, evil then becomes a label that we can use to take the place of others, to shove them off the place they currently occupy and put ourselves in their place. Breathing their air, eating their food. As we move away from our past religions and we rise with a new religion that instead of labeling people evil we might call them ill unfunctioning in some way non-functioning in our society by which we mean people who violate the agreements in some way who upset the process of how people become high status and if you do this even if it fits with the verbal values of the group if you upset the way someone gets status then it is definitely seen as an attack and a source of a lot of change so it's not really something you want to do for all our talk of disrupting in the age of software unless you have the capacity to stand up in a direct fight and win. And even then, in the long term, a lot of direct fighting takes a toll.
So even if you're going to win every battle, the war may be difficult because you chose to fight it on a battlefield head to head. However, that is how we get fast changes to a society often, is by some group that is overwhelmingly asymmetrically powerful in some dimension and is able to channel all the conflicts toward that dimension. For example, a battle in war. And then takes that and uses that to enforce a new method of assigning status. You might notice that a lot of conquering fledgling empires are quite meritocratic relative to the other societies around them, and that is because they're using that to be powerful enough in one dimension to then continue to change the way people get status. However, this kind of direct approach does seem to result in a pattern where the conquerors themselves, who might know how to conquer, but don't know how to govern, can't quite take over. So what ends up happening is instead of restructuring the very systems that cause the weakness in the existing societies in the first place, they simply replace the elites in that society with themselves, but the system still wins by making it very easy for them to settle into their new roles as the elites of the old system rather than whatever efforts they may take to change the system itself. So, basically, if you get powerful enough in one dimension, an existing society offers you a seat at the head of the table. And that way, you're at the table. Even if maybe you didn't want tables, maybe you want to sit around on your haunches, like where you came from, and maintain your strength, but that produces too much difficulty, so you are, through your exceptional fitness, now the head of the system. But the system is still largely the same. It simply incorporates some of your changes, some of your mutations, into itself a little bit at a time. So your essence then as the conqueror is sort of kept in record so that when the system finds another would-be conqueror it has now learned a little bit more about how to keep that conqueror from winning. So, conquerors getting put at the head of a table, uh, getting 
to replace a current crop of elites in a system is a sort of immunization for that society. Against future would-be conquerors. You may notice that areas that had a lot of hippies are currently pretty expensive to live in. And anything that was once a part of the counterculture is now solidly a part of the culture. Another way of saying this is that if it is on a t-shirt, if you can buy a t-shirt that says something that acts as a signifier for your subculture, your subculture is no longer a subculture, it has been consumed and colonized, so to speak, by the overculture. And this sort of thing has happened in the Western world, and as well as the, the rest of the world, over and over again, where a culture with more uh, power and means comes in and offers potential upstarts a seat at the table in some way. If you were part of a subculture and you were canny in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and even now, you probably... So, if you have a culture and it starts performing really well in some one dimension, whether that's making amazing music that is previously unheard of, or art, or coming up with ideas and processes that were not possible before by combining things that the incumbent culture had a hard time combining because as cultures age they become stagnant and rigid and it's difficult for them to incorporate new things but one way that they can incorporate new things is by this method of having a place at the table for potentially new upstarts. So if you have a culture that is producing something novel, the overculture will reward you in the terms of the overculture, in its conception of what wealth and status is 
so long as you can sell that to the overculture, so long as you can package the subculture for sale. And the process of doing that sort of defangs any threat that the subculture might have. You can see something like this in how meditation has spread as a tool of governments and corporations so that it's kept in a particular place and so that there is a sort of facsimile version that is spread out, spread around. And so when someone hears about it, they can be like, yeah, I heard my therapist talk about this or my doctor talk about this. I know what it is. And that feeling of knowing, that feeling of certainty in the category of the new thing might prevent people from actually fully jumping into that new pool. The pool, maybe it was a rock pool by the ocean, is instead filled with cement, paved with tile, and gets water pumped into it. And so the experience will be a little different, might not be as catastrophically world-changing as the experience might have been before it was packaged for the overculture, and this then is a sort of vaccine for its immunity. You can also see this with how rave culture, which might have had the potential to be institution-destroying, was instead taken over time and changed into the modern festival, which is a sort of Disney Park version of a rave. Instead of people finding a way to release all the pent-up energy that modern life compressed illegally and in abandoned locations, building a counterculture camaraderie, it was slowly brought into the light and packaged for sale. So that now you can pay for a ticket and have that as a isolated event and experience. And these patterns are sort of the same with, with all, all the inviting to the table patterns. They all follow this process of taking a continuous process and turning it into a packaged, categorized, singular event so that the potentially alternative process that could take over and displace 
the default meta process is instead incorporated. And there's a, a difference here in the sense that it lets it, it's there's a difference between having the new process take space on its own or and displacing the prior process and the having the new process simply be put into a place on the old process so it's it's a very different result depending on whose branch one is so if if the new process is a branch on an old tree that's very different from the new process becoming the roots and the old tree becoming a branch on the new tree this is exemplified to me in some ways by for example the use of traditional martial arts in MMA a lot of the big names in the 90s and 2000s brought some sort of martial art to MMA and the spirit that they brought with it, say like a Lyoto Machida or Georges Saint-Pierre who are both practitioners of karate when they brought that spirit of karate to MMA they kept it and built MMA on top of it for their game. They incorporated whatever other martial arts styles they learned for the purpose of MMA into their karate rather than someone who might have learned MMA from the get-go where the person who learns MMA from an MMA gym as their first martial art is learning something that's especially contextualized to that particular contest, to that particular format. And so the results are very different even if the skill of it might look the same to someone who's paid less attention to unarmed fighting in their lives. So similarly, it's very different when the overculture incorporates something versus where it might be displaced by something. And we don't actually know what this looks like because we're the result of a culture winning over and over and over again and consuming uh, rival cultures over and over again. You might, again, look at this uh, from the point of view of Catholicism where 
Catholicism, part of, part of what makes it useful is that it can incorporate local religions, local belief systems, into itself. Though what were once gods might turn into saints. And that's very different to have as a structure, uh, to have as a foundational structure in your mind that decides how you perceive everything than it is if you, say, had a native Aztec culture that incorporated parts of Christianity. The, the results of both these things are very different. I remember a time when I encountered someone who had just learned about, well, they had spent the last five or ten years attending conferences and such and learning about system science and complex complexity science. And they talked the talk a lot. They used the words that one would use if you were paying attention to those things. But that was definitely not their default culture. And you could see it by the way they taught their classes. Because teaching a class from a systems approach would look very different from the typical linear approach that we all use by default and do not question as much by default. So a professor giving a lecture is very different from multiple groups of students being given a problem to tackle to together and to map out together. And I could see that this person, while they were talking a lot about system science, had not integrated it and incorporated it into their life, even though now, if you found them, they would probably show up as an expert on system science. They were probably lecturing other people <laughs> on system science. But it was clear that whatever was in that new culture, the, that new academic subculture that arose in the last 50 years, that in this case, it had been consumed by the overculture and was used again as a sort of medal, a sort of award, a sort of differentiating skin. So like if you're in a market and everyone's selling mugs, different people might start painting their mugs and adorning their mugs in different ways to get sales. Now, what happens when someone comes along and starts giving donkeys away to people they like? That is now completely different, in a way, than selling mugs at the market, because the, the competition and attention is not just between mugs and a totally different kind of product, such as selling donkeys, but now it's 
between the market itself, the way of thinking about things as a market, and differentiating the mugs. And now you're dealing with someone who might be playing a different kind of game where they're giving a donkey away for some reason. Maybe it's religious. Maybe they love donkeys so much that they want everyone to be able to use donkeys in their everyday life, which is why they breed them and um, give them away. But because they're giving them away, someone will be like, oh, what are these animals? They stink. They bite sometimes. Sometimes they kick. They're very stubborn. They kind of seem stupid compared to, to horses. They don't do what they're told. Notice that I said that for not doing what they're, they're told, they might be seen of, seen as stupid. So, maybe the person who's giving donkeys away realizes that to actually get someone to use a donkey, to, to adopt a donkey, they might have to start selling them. And perhaps once they start selling them, more people are interested in having a donkey. Because now it's worth something according to the old culture, according to the old paradigm. And once there's value established there, more people start selling donkeys. And now the initial donkey enthusiast is supplanted by someone who used to sell mugs but who got a donkey early and they remember that to sell mugs they had to adorn their mugs and paint their mugs in a certain way and change it all the time to justify the sale every month to the same people So they start doing the same thing to the donkey. They start differentiating the donkeys by having a breeding program that makes mini donkeys and only white donkeys and maybe they even paint some donkeys, braid their hair, give them names instead of letting the new donkey friends name them. Suggesting that one must own a donkey in order to be an elder or give a donkey away for marriage and pretty soon the original guy who was giving donkeys away might not recognize the same appreciation of donkeys in all the people who sell donkeys and use donkeys now so this invitation to the table pattern and something to keep in mind because facing it directly is very difficult because ultimately value does come from what everyone else wants and if everyone else wants the table they will get the table 
and they will come against you. They will pressure you from all sides. And the strongest pressures will be inventational. So who knows when the table might be flipped over and when people might be sitting on their haunches under a tree eating again. Either way, this table is yours and it's mine. Oh.